Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. You know, uh, over the years, one of the uh, major questions we surface in our surveys is the, the cost and fees associated with, ta- with taking in credit card applications, credit card uh, transactions, etc. cetera. Uh, I was particularly pleased when uh, came across my desk um, uh, a discussion uh, and uh, from Pat Moran. He's a payment executive and advisor, talks of, and he wants to talk about the fact that for years small businesses have paid high fees to credit card acquirers and press processors. Uh, it's, it's been an interesting time. On our latest survey, which we just completed, uh, we do every year, uh, it's now popping up as a great concern. So we've invited Pat to, to join us on this program tonight. Welcome, Pat. Thanks, Donald. Um, thanks for having me tonight. Um, as you mentioned, um, I've been in the payments business for about 14 years. Um, the first chunk of that, I actually worked for Visa, uh, which you know uh, many people often refer to as an evil empire or MasterCard is an evil empire for for those fees that you talk about. Um, but then for years, I also worked for a major acquire processor um, based in uh, Cincinnati called Fifth Third Processing Solutions, which is now Vantiv. Uh, Pat, let me just interrupt you. What's the difference sure. between an acquirer and a processing company? Well, there's a, there's a, acquirer itself is a technical term for the bank that actually holds the contracts between the merchant and uh, and Visa and Mastercard. The processor is the entity that actually uh, processes the transactions. You know, sometimes it's the same entity, but but often it's a different company that's the acquirer and the processor. Either way, from a merchant perspective, it really doesn't matter. They typically have a single contract with a acquirer slash processor or whoever sold them the credit card business, and and that's who they look to from a fees perspective. 
Well, you, you said here the Met. Go ahead. The floor is yours, Pat. I won't interrupt you. Oh no, no. I, I just I was hoping I answered your question, Donald. Um, but you know, one one of the things, and, and it's it is enlightening that more and more so these days, um, small businesses um, are getting interested in in how these fees are calculated or how they're getting charged these fees. Um, you know, when credit cards were 10% of their business, it, it really didn't matter that much, right? They, they paid those fees. They, they weren't that significant of a cost to their business. But nowadays, you know, the vast majority of most retailers' payment transactions are, are not via cash or check anymore. They're, they're via either debit cards or credit cards. Um, so there, there is... Yeah, highlighted sensitivity to, to what these fees are and, and how they get charged. Um, additionally, you know, there, there's, there's literally hundreds and thousands of companies that, that promote or sell these solutions to merchants. So there's, there's probably, if you're a small business retailer or restaurant on, you know, Main Street here in St. Paul, on Grand Avenue in St. Paul where, near where I live, um, you know, you probably get called at least every week um, uh, with somebody promoting, uh, uh, you know, that they're going to, quote, save you money. Uh, and oftentimes that's not really the case. Um, one of the positive developments that's happened recently, Donald, is that MasterCard has come out with some new pricing standards, which I think are a positive first step. So these are standards for the, the entities that sell the services to the merchants. Um, you know, the economics of this business, including Interchange, which is a, a big component and kind of a lightning rod in this business, Interchange is a fee that's charged between the merchant and the bank that issues the card. Um, it's a complex system that, that goes on, and it leads to a lot of confusion for small businesses. And quite Before frankly, go... over... Sure. Go ahead, Don. No, you, uh, but, but before you go further... Uh, I understand that, uh, and I, I read the Wall Street Journal, and whenever I, I read it, I get more confused. Uh, but there are new laws in place. Am I right uh, about this? Uh, about credit there are card Donald. transactions? Call there me Don. Are, um, Only my mother called me Donald when she was oh, angry I'm at sorry. me. Nope. I'm what sorry. Nope. You don't know that, but Don, Don's a better way of doing it. But anyway, yeah, a couple, uh, of, a, a couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, um, Congress actually regulated um, the the interchange fees that are charged on debit card transactions. And generally, I'd say this regulation was great for big businesses, but for most small businesses, the change or the lowering of this interchange cost really didn't make much of a difference. Uh, in fact. What it did was um, uh, most of the acquirers and processors made more money on small businesses when that occurred. So it was great for the, the Targets, Walmarts, you know, um, uh, Costco's, et cetera, of the world, but it didn't necessarily help the small businesses. Um, you know, I think you what know, is you're helping... Go ahead. What is helping? No, go Go, go ahead. Uh, no, it, it's interesting that you that you said that uh, because uh, you're the first person from the industry that I've talked to that's really said that. Uh, 
they all kind of uh, gloss over it. But uh, uh, I've always felt that the, the small business, like many other things, got the, a little bit of the shaft in, the, in, uh, in that law. Yeah, I mean, look, they they can't regulate, I guess, every everything that goes on in the in the market. Um, I like to think over time that you know, as they regulated and lowered those debit fees, that'll flow through to the small businesses, and maybe some of it has done. But but I'm uh, you know, I'd say right away, many of the uh, many of the processors simply took most of that money into profit. There are processors out there who, who do, um, you know, I, I'd say many of the processors are fair, but they're, like any other industry, there are some, there are, there are players who don't play fair. Um, and, you know, I think over, I, I like to think over time the market corrects itself, but, you know, in the short run, it doesn't necessarily uh, help that small business. Okay, so now let's get back. You, you were going to say about the... Um uh, MasterCard. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I, I think that some of the, some of, as I mentioned, there are players in the industry who don't necessarily treat small businesses fairly uh, on credit card processing. And I think what's happening, Don, is that, you know, the MasterCards and Visas of the world are waking up to say, you know, look, if, if the companies that distribute the processing services um, aren't treating small businesses fairly, then that you know that harms everybody in the business, right? Including including Visa and Mastercard, and and that's why Mastercard put out some new standards, um, which you know maybe I'd like to see them go farther with some of these standards, but but it's a really good first step to um, to kind of setting some baseline fairness standards and and how they. Uh, sell the MasterCard, you know, acquire uh, uh, standards or pro- pricing. And, you know, they're pretty simple standards. They're, they're things that simply, just, you know, talk about um, truthful, clear, and simple disclosure. And we can all argue about, you know, uh, you know what that means <laughs> in the end. Um, they have to be clear about the contract elements and how pricing is calculated. Um, they have to give um, small businesses at least 30 days' notice when they change fees, and if they raise fees, they have to let the, the, the merchant get out of the contract. You know, in these contracts, Don, a lot of times they'll come in with a low rate, um, and they'll say, you know, I'm giving you a really low rate, and then over the course of time, they'll raise the fees on that customer without really any um, real um, rationale for raising those fees, and they'll do it in a way, um, you know, in the fine print of a monthly statement, so as oftentimes the merchant doesn't even know. I mean, it's, uh, there is some, there are some great players in the industry, some very fair ones, but there are some others that, that don't necessarily treat merchants fairly. Well, um, I, uh, I saw a press release uh, yesterday, in fact, uh, tweeted on it, that the uh, Bank of America was considered uh, the best of them and that uh, Citibank and Wells Fargo, uh, amongst others, were, were not as, as, uh, as well regarded in that. Uh, hmm. I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you who... who <laughs> 
who are the better ones. Well, I think, we go... I think what's interesting, the three that you mentioned all use basically the same, uh, the same entity, first data, to process their transactions and, and oftentimes set, you know, manage their pricing. So, um, yeah, I don't, you know, I, I don't really want to comment on which banks are good and which ones are bad. I think that, um, and it's not just, you know, it's not necessarily banks, but oftentimes these uh, smaller independent sales organizations uh, that, that might do things that are a little, little sketchy. Um, but what, what I will say is that um, you, as a small business, you really need to read the contract. I know it's hard to do. Um, but if you get a contract and there are a lot of, and somebody comes in with this super low rate, and um, which is almost a teaser rate, I would call it, um, you know, really question what's going on there. Just, you know, oftentimes if something looks too good to be true, it probably is. <laughs> and there are probably other ways they're making money. Um, the, one of the, the classic ways they make money in this business is they say your rate's, you know, 1.6%. Well, it's 1.6% on 5% of your transactions. And guess what? On the other 95%, I'm going to charge you, um, you know, the difference between the interchange fees plus another 100, 200, or 300 basis points. So then you end up, you know, really paying 3% instead of 1.6%. Um, and the people who've seen this, I, I'm sure they're listening to me going, yeah, I've seen that in my merchant staple. Um, and that's what happens. I, I think one of, one of the other positive things that's happened is there's been a lot of new players in the market. Like uh, you've probably heard of Square or Intuit's GoPayment or PayPal. And many of these players are coming out with pretty fair, transparent, and simple pricing. And I think those guys are kind of setting a baseline or a cap on what some of the other guys can charge. Um, and I think that competition hopefully will drive down prices for small businesses. We had the woman in charge of PayPal's uh, program on the program a few weeks ago, and she was a hoot. Um, <laughs> in fact, I got more, more comments about her uh, than, than I usually get uh, from my uh, uh, guests. But what should a uh, – I'm, I'm a new small business what should I look for in a, uh, when I decide on a, a merchant account uh, to choose somebody to, to process my, uh, uh, yeah. my credit cards? Well, look, I think you look for, you look for a contract that has, a rel you know, hopefully no more than a three-year term. You look, for, um, you, you look for what we call interchange plus pricing, which is pricing where the fees that go to the, the issuing bank and the fees that go to MasterCard or Visa, those fees are charged um, separately or transparently. And then the fee that goes to the processor is transparent at, you know, 20 cents a transaction or 20 basis points a transaction, and that's charged separately. These interchange plus contracts are, are typically, they used to be only for big guys, but more and more so, I'd say small guys get, get these. The other thing is, you know, don't pay monthly minimum fees. Don't pay monthly statement fees. You know, look at this. You know, they'll put an annual fee in there or, um, 
you know, a fee to be PCI compliant for 20 bucks a month. And they'll, they'll put a lot of these ticky-tack fees on that really can add up if you're a small business. So those are a couple of things I highlight. I would also say don't ever lease a terminal. They'll come in and say, you know, it's only $39.99 a month to lease this terminal. Well, guess what? You're locked into a 36- or 48-month lease on those terminals, and the terminal itself only costs, you know, $250, $300. So, you know, why would you pay $40 for 36 months for something that costs $36? Uh, they make a lot of money. Often the sales guy is the one who makes a lot of money leasing those the equipment out there. And so be careful of that, too. Well, small businesses always look at leases as a, a way to conserve cash. But in this case, it's really not a smart move, if I he heard you correctly. Yeah, I mean, it's fine if you were, you know, if the lease is 15 or $20, uh, maybe, um, and it's a three-year lease. But oftentimes, you get locked into these leases. Uh, and they're also a way for to lock you in on that lease, right? And they'll lock you in on the contract. And then at the same time, as I told you before, they'll raise your contract price across the term. Well, you want to get out of that. You might want to get out of that contract because of that price increase. Well, guess what? You're still stuck in a lease of a terminal that you can't use in another processor. So they'll use tricks like that to, to, to keep you in the contract. So I really don't like leases per se for a merchant. I prefer them to, to buy the terminal or, or rent it month to month if they have to, uh, if it's a cash flow issue. Uh, but these leases are often, uh, you know, a way for them to really lock you in. Well, uh, let me ask you a question I've always wondered about. Uh, when I do a return is the, and the merchant credits my account, is he, being, uh, he or she being charged the same rate as, if, as when I charge it? Well, they, don't, they shouldn't get charged on the – so the way that the math works, uh, those interchange fees that we talk about that make up the, the majority of what a merchant pays on the transaction fees, that actually goes back to the processor on a return. So if you go into a normal contract, like I talked about the Interchange Plus contract, you also want to do it so that it's, you're charged on net sales, not on gross sales, so that when that interchange comes back to the processor, you're effectively getting that interchange back, that you're not paying double. Um, so, you know, if, if, you're, if you had a lot of returns just because you're great at customer service, you like to let people buy things and bring them back, and you're not in an interchange plus or one that is charged on net sales, then you end up paying interchange or merchant discount on lots of transactions that you know, your processor actually makes a bunch of money on because he's not giving you the interchange back. So, you know, it's oftentimes that's a complex issue to negotiate how, how returns are handled. But the simple way to think about it is that you should be charged on net sales, not on gross sales. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Uh, I, I'm learning a lot. I hope our audience is. Uh, what, you, what do you do, Pat? You're a consultant and you're in the industry. Uh, uh, how do you make your money? <laughs> well, 
Well, um, you know, I work for um, uh, I work for large merchants. I work for some of the large e-commerce merchants um, in the U.S. I, I do some consulting to a bunch of startup technology companies, um, and from time to time, I help small businesses. Uh, there's a uh, as I mentioned, I live in St. Paul, Minnesota, and there's a buddy of mine here who I play squash with who who um, uh, has a big catering company, and I recently helped him look at his merchant statements. And you know, with not too much work, I was able to save him about a hundred thousand dollars a year by cutting his merchant fees. And um, you know, it's not always um, you know, business people are busy trying. Small business people are busy trying to do multiple things at the same time. And this is an area that can kind of slip by you. Uh, unless you, you know, you know, unless you get an expert to help you, and or if you have a, a really fair merchant processor. So, I mean, you know, just like any other vendor, you wanna you wanna vet these guys. Uh, you wanna find out what's what other people say about them. You wanna you wanna you know uh, shop two or three or four or five of these guys uh, to find out and make sure you get the best deal. Um, but it's an area that's important for a small business, and um, uh, you know, if you know what you're doing, you can get a good deal. Well, one of the things uh, I've seen happening uh, lately, well, it's, it's been there, but I see more and more where I'm shopping. The, the 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 minimum that you can charge has gone up. Uh, I noticed uh, just going in into a store yesterday. That before it was just ten dollars uh, you could then charge, but they just jumped it to twenty dollars uh, before you could charge. Have you seen that as a trend? Well, you know they're not really. Um, I think if you go back to that Durban legislation, or excuse me, there was a recent uh, a Visa Mastercard interchange settlement where they talked about minimum fees. Um, typically. If they take cards, they're not supposed to be uh, allow minimums. Uh, I think in this recent Visa Mastercard settlement, they put out a uh, uh, they they allowed people to charge minimums, but it couldn't be more than a ten dollar one. You know, so technically, if somebody's charging a twenty dollar minimum before you can use a card, they're probably technically breaking their merchant contract. Um, the reality, it's not like Visa and Mastercard go out there and and uh, you know, spend all their time policing these issues, but you're really not supposed to do that as a small business. Um, and and I can't remember if it's on debit cards or credit cards. I think the minimum is is only applicable to uh, to, to credit cards. You you can't put a minimum on on debit cards. But um, I could go back and check and, and get you that information back. I'm, I'm just be uh, curious uh, again. Uh, we're seeing some radical changes. Uh, can we go uh, now to e-commerce, which is uh, everybody, it's like everything else, people are, are stampeding towards it. Do you have any uh, uh, suggestions for our audience who are planning uh, uh, either changes or even beginning e-commerce in, in taking in um, uh, 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 payments? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the important thing to understand in e-commerce, there's a couple things. One is that usually in a face-to-face -face transaction, if a consumer uses a, a counterfeited card or a fraudulent card, 
for the most part, a merchant is not liable in the face-to-face environment for a chargeback on that. In other words, the issuer can't, um, you know, take the money back from that small business or that merchant. But in the e-commerce environment, for the most part, um, merchants are liable for, for, for chargebacks for a variety of reasons. So the key when you're, when you're, when you're in, you know, doing um, e-commerce transactions is to really understand who your customers are. And you can do that oftentimes. There's, there, there are uh, 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 card processing tools that help you minimize fraud through either oftentimes a little uh, fraud system that detects you know, possible fraudulent transactions. There's also many things in place uh, that you and I use all the time, right? We have to put in our zip code and often what they call the CVV, which is that, you know, on a Visa MasterCard, it's the little three-digit number on the back. On an Amex card, it's the four-digit number on the front. These are all tools that the networks have out there that, that you, you, you as a small business doing e-commerce transactions should make sure that you don't accept transactions unless, you know, you, get, you use those tools and get positive responses. Uh, but again, you know, in the e-commerce environment, you're much more likely to get chargebacks, and those chargebacks are often ones that you know you'll have to pay the money back to the to the issuing bank on if they're if they're you know a customer says they didn't do it or it was a fraudulent card used to do that transaction. So those are things to think about. Um, then there's of course. Um, you know, ensuring that your systems are what we call PCI compliant and making sure that, uh, you know, uh, the bad guys out there can't get into your website or your systems and, and steal card data as it, as it moves through the system. So we've been um, inundated. Before we go any further, how can people reach you if they want to talk further or perhaps use your services? Sure, I you know um, uh, <laughs> well I can I can I'm happy to give out my email address um, um, Pat at Randon Holdings that's R A N D O N Holdings dot com uh, that's a business I I set up to help people with uh, claims in the Visa Mastercard settlement that's kind of a side business I have uh, again that's Pat at Randon Holdings dot com. Is one way to get a hold of me if they if they if they want to just bounce ideas off me. I'm happy to to, to talk to people and and get and give them feedback. Well, uh, we've been inundated with uh, uh, all, all of the Target lo- uh, losing millions of na- uh, uh, with security frauds, etc. Um, what happens with a small mer- merchant? Uh, they can afford uh, some of these settlements, but a lot of small businesses can't. What can they do to mitigate uh, uh, chances of that happening? Well, the, f- the first thing they need to do is work with their acquire processor and make sure that they do the basic steps of what, what is called PCI. And there are some really simple steps that merchants should take um, to protect themselves. Secondly, they should only use equipment, whether it's a point-of-sale solution um, or a terminal, etc., that is um, what they call PADSS compliant, which means it's certified and it's protected and it's, it's past kind of the audit screen. 
if if you're buying services from one of these processors and you talk to them about PCI and PADSS and they don't know what the heck you're talking about, then you probably got a problem there. You probably ought to look for another provider. But those are really simple things to do to make sure that you're doing the best practices to protect your systems. And a lot of these are really simple things, right? Uh, if you're using an integrated point of sale, um, don't use the you know don't use the standard password they give you when it starts. That's called password, right? <laughs> don't make your system password password. Um, you know uh, that's a really kind of simple one, but you'd be amazed how many people uh, don't do some of the basic security things. Uh, you know you obviously want to do uh, security updates if you're if you have a uh, e-commerce site, you're going to want to have the site scan quarterly for uh, you know breach activity type things. So there there are things you can do. I'm not an expert on the security side, but it is something that you need to talk to your processor about. Make sure most of them have tools out there, by the way, that you can access to help you do this. They're supposed to make sure all their merchants go through this kind of basic PCI. Um, uh, compliance activity, and uh, some of them do, some of them don't. But uh, you should really talk to your provider and make sure that you understand what those activities should be. Well, I understand you're not, but uh, let me ask you just one more question in this vein. Um, sure. some, some people I, I deal with have my information on um, uh, on file, my, my credit card information, yep. and others don't. What do you suggest they um, uh, is a better is uh, obviously it's a, a great customer service tool when they say oh yes we have it and certainly facilitates the uh, uh, the sales process but it also leaves you open to a lot of uh, 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 to, to the chance that people will will uh, crack your system um, yeah do you have I, any you know I don't worry. Yeah, I do. I mean, I don't worry about it as a consumer that much. Uh, when they store your card on file, um, they're either keeping that – they are supposed to either keep that data in their system encrypted or they might use a tokenization provider, somebody who basically takes that data and provides a token that, that you know, if the token is stolen, it's worthless. The other thing they're doing is they're not they're not storing – the data on the mag stripe of the card. So in an e-commerce environment, card number, um, you know, won't let you create a new card that can be, that's really a face-to-face -face counterfeited card. So they're not going to have the mag stripe data. They're not allowed to keep that or store that. They're also not allowed to store the CVV, that you know, three or four-digit code that I talked about. So I really don't worry about that a lot. Um, it you know. Uh, I think that as we move to EMV cards in the U.S., the chip cards, then maybe you'll start to see more fraud in those type of environments. But most of the big frauds, uh, you know, data breaches we've had in the U.S. have been in the card, card present environment where the crooks stole the data kind of in, in transit. Uh, you know, in the target breach, what it looks like is they, you know, um, those cards that are swiped at the terminal at Target, uh, that data was transmitted through the Target systems, and and the crooks had a sniffer system that basically 
you know, um, copied all that MagStripe information as the card went through the system and, you know, shot it out to, you know, back out to the crooks. Um, that's, that's the biggest risk in the system today is, is uh, you know, that, that data. People have gotten pretty smart. They're not storing uh, MagStripe data on their systems, hopefully, anymore. And it's these other type of breaches where the data is kind of in transit where we've had the, the bigger problems recently. Well, again, how can people reach you? Because uh, Sure, again, uh, my name is Pat Moran. They can look me up on uh, LinkedIn. Um, you know, if you, if you Google Pat Moran, and um, I, went to, I went to college at the United States Military Academy, so if you put in Pat Moran, United States Military Academy, I'll, I'll pop in there. I used to be a, a soldier in my youth. So um, uh, that's probably the easiest way. Find me on LinkedIn or pat at randonholdings.com. Uh, uh, really, uh, thank you for a really illuminating half hour. Uh, we t- we uh, uh, held you over because I think our audience uh, learned an awful lot. Thank you for coming. Great, and have a great night, Don. You, you too. Take care. Our next guest is Matthew Cordasco. Uh, he's here to talk about his new new startup. Mike Crowd, welcome to the program. Thanks, Don. It's good to be here. Well, uh, we always ask our guests to say a little bit about themselves before we get into uh, what I think uh, uh, is a a needed service. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. I think in short, uh, I'd call myself a startup guy. I've spent the last couple decades in and around startups and fell in love with the startup world uh, back before the, the first internet bubble. I was uh, 22 at the, start, at the time and started a company called ISIS where we would deliver high-tech solutions to large companies to give them a competitive advantage. And uh, over the last 20 years, I've just been in and out of startups. I've had some pretty great successes and, and I've also chalked up a few failures I'd love to think that the failures probably taught me more than some of the successes did. What, what, so, did, Winston yeah. Church, what did Winston Churchill say? Success is overcoming a series of failures. <laughs> that's, that's absolutely right. I think that's the that's the motto of startups, and certainly in this day and age of of having mo- movies like uh, the Social Network, it seems like anybody can rub two sticks together and have a, a billion dollar startup. Uh, but the truth is it's just a ton of work and you have to face failure repeatedly and with optimism. Uh, the untold story, but uh, I think that there are people that have it in their DNA. Uh, I'm one of those folks. Uh, so, so that path took me along. Um, most recently I founded a web analytics company called Overstat, which was acquired by IBM in 2010. And that leads us to uh, my latest venture, which is MyCrowd, and we're trying to disrupt the freelancer marketplace. Well, be, before before we get into that, let me ask you another question. What are what are the two things you you've most learned uh, in in your career as a serial entrepreneur that you'd like to that you would pass on to someone who asked, like I just did? 
Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So, so I would say that it's harder than than you'll you'll imagine. <laughs> so, uh, I think every day you wake up and and, and I like to quote a tale of two cities. You know, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times. In in every single day, you'll have uh, battles that you'll win and battles that you lose. And so, persevering is is really just the key. Uh, I think that all startups are like marathons, and the only way that you fail is is by by quitting by stop running um, and you know each step that you take comes at a price uh, you're sacrificing time you could be doing something else and you're sacrificing your you know financial wherewithal uh, so I, I think that, that that tenacity is really I think a very common thread in a lot of the successful entrepreneurs that, that I've seen unfortunately we, we seem to uh uh, highlight people uh, like Zucker who uh, uh, seem seemingly f- fell into it. Um, uh, you mentioned the Tale of Two Cities, uh, in, uh, which immediately thinks about the guillotine. But uh, uh, there's the old line from Christopher Marlowe: uh, "The lady's not for burning." How creative people become when they face the hangman in the morning. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's uh, that's it. I, and. I think, I mean, you're asking about some common attributes or, or advice for startup folks, and I think it's that creativity. Uh, there's creativity in the, the initial, you know, genesis of an idea. Here's a clever idea that's not being serviced by the marketplace, but I think that creativity really lives in every day. It's what, what challenge is, is facing us today, what changed uh, in the world from yesterday to today, and, and how do we solve that? And that's just uh, the creative process and, and then making it happen. Now tell us about MyCrowd. Yeah, MyCrowd is a, it's, a, it's an online freelancer marketplace. And so what that means is we have millions of freelancers from across the planet. Uh, a ton of them are in the U.S. And, and from every other country, 140 countries. And what, what we know is, is that people... Every, everyday people and businesses have long lists of to-dos. They've just got a long list of tasks. Um, and, and we believe that people should begin to cherry-pick some of the tasks that would be best serviced by highly qualified expert who would be a freelancer. And so in the business environment, this could mean circling an item like uh, do some market research, or update our website, or create a mobile app, or translate a document, or write some blog copy. And instead of doing that yourself, or instead of having somebody on your immediate team doing that, throw it over the wall to somebody at Minecraft, and you'll get it done cost-effectively and by an expert that you might not have on staff. Well, do you concentrate in certain areas? Well, for instance, web design or... What do you do? You concentrate? Sure. So you know the, the big bucket is, as we say, if you can do it with a computer, then we have workers that are qualified in it. Uh, there, there are uh, you know some some services like TaskRabbit, who uh, you can hire somebody to come and, and put together your IKEA furniture or uh, wait in line for a concert for you. But my crowd focuses only on online tasks. So. If it's uh, you know if it can be done digitally, then it's something we can do. Um, and as far as that, we're, we're not really focusing on anything in particular. So translation is as equally balanced as copywriting, 
or web design is? Well, um, uh, since I learned about you, invited you on the program, I've sent three people uh, to to uh, sign up to, to uh, uh, provide it uh, because uh, uh, right now today we seem to be in a, a consultant's world uh, with uh, organizations uh, kind of flattening even the smallest organization today. Uh, but how do how do you establish rates and how, you know uh, you can you can get a website for fifty dollars or fifty thousand dollars for instance um, uh, how does one go about this, deciding uh, what I want to pay uh, uh, let, 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 let's say they decide yeah. that they need help and they have a little yeah. bit of money how, how do you decide what you want to pay and what you should pay um, and how do you measure uh, one freelancer against the other. Sure, sure. Those are those are good questions. I, I think the first the first question really is a, a pretty complex one to you know to, to dissect. Uh, if if somebody is is uh, has a desire to outsource a task that they have familiarity with, then they often have experience for the type of worker that should do it and how much. You know, a dollar will buy, and so they're able to define that relatively easily. But if somebody's trying to outsource a task that they're not familiar with, it is a big problem. So an example would be mobile app development. So maybe a company has been going along, they've got a website, they're an insurance company, but what do they know about mobile apps? They want something for the iPhone, but they want to hire somebody. That, that's, that's a tricky proposition. And so for smaller tasks, you can post something publicly and you can say, I generally put a value on this task of $50 or $100. And people will have the opportunity to see that, see your description, see your budget, and then respond to you and say, okay, I see what you want done, and I can do exactly that for even less than what you're posting. Uh, somebody else might come back and say, that's pretty involved. It's going to be twice as much as what you're posting. And so you can read these responses and people's rationale behind the different prices, and you'll get a good sense of both the worker quality as well as which path you might want to take. You know, and I think the, the truism of you get what you pay for is true you know, on my crowd as well. Uh, you could hire a U.S. worker for standard U.S. worker rates, or you could hire somebody from outside the U.S. The worker outside the U.S. will most likely be less expensive, but you could run into some challenges where maybe their English isn't perfect or maybe they're in a time zone that's a little more challenging to communicate with. If saving money is that important to you, you'll, you'll overlook those things, but if it's not, then you'll stick with the U.S. worker and say, I want a high-quality product, I'm willing to pay a premium, and I'm going to hire the guy from Cincinnati. Well, um then um, uh, you, you put out a, uh, a, a request. You get four or five, and then. Uh, but how do you decide the quality of, of the of the freelancer? Right, right. So part two of the question is is really uh, what are the criteria by which a, a worker is measured? So there's a rating system in there. There's stars from from zero to five. Uh, there's previous customer feedback, so you can flip through and, and read you know, what kind of experiences that people have 
uh, before me. Uh, and then there's work history. Did this person complete tests? Um, you know, where was where did you know where did this person go to school? Uh, and and so there there's there are you know a number of different ways for you to evaluate uh, a worker. So you know it's it's worth saying that there's two there's two major ways of of hiring a worker on MyCrowd. The first one empowers you, uh, you as as the customer, you as the person that's hiring a worker. You can post it publicly. You can search for workers. You can review workers. The other way is you can simply uh, sort of throw a, throw the brick over the wall, so to speak, and and tell MyCrowd about the task that you want done and for the price. Say, I want blog writing. I want 500 words for uh, 100 bucks, and and our system will find a worker for you. And so then you'll just be presented with one highly qualified worker for you to kind of say, yes, this, this worker is exactly the person I'm looking for, yes or no. If you say no, then another one is sent over. And so that method has the advantage of both kind of machine algorithms in the back end, you know, getting a good match, but there's also a person at my crowd that is personally inspecting your task and making sure that the worker that we recommend for you is a good match. So some people like to be more hands-on and do the search and evaluation themselves. Other people want to just say, here's my task, send me a worker. Well, what about um, how do you guarantee uh, um, that, A, that freelancer will get paid, uh, and, and B, that the, uh, uh, the buyer is getting what he or she uh, requires? That's another excellent question. So uh, when, when, a, when a, a, a task is requested, there's obviously a description um, of what the person wants done. There's a price. When, a worker, um, when, when you engage with a worker and you communicate back and forth, you finalize what those terms are, and then when, it, when a task is, is started, both parties are agreeing to, to those terms. And the customer doesn't pay until the final final work product is presented, and the the worker is guaranteed payment based on uh, completion of the project. If in, in in some unusual circumstance there's a disagreement, then MyCrowd steps in and helps to mediate the situation to to take a, a, a pers- you know objective look at what are the circumstances here, did somebody fail to deliver on a promise, uh, and we'll make a decision. But it's almost always in those cases uh, in favor of the customer. But it's, it's very rare. Um, do you require the customer to put a, a credit card for the amount beforehand? So customers are not charged until they accept the final deliverable. Have you ever had anybody Welsh on it? Freelancers, uh, I was just at a, uh, I belong to a, uh, the, the Journalism Society, and I just happened to be last week, and uh, there were two uh, uh, people there uh, bemoaning the fact that uh, they had written the material, uh, presented it, and then uh, uh, the uh, buyer uh, Said it wasn't good enough, and then they found out later on that he he had taken it and used it. Uh, and it turned out to be a, they discovered it because they discovered it was the same buyer. Um, right. Uh, used used it. If you if you submit, let's say a blog, and he said, "Well, I, this is not what I want," 
uh, and I don't want to pay, uh, you, the blogger has has made you know had made the effort already. Uh, how do you handle a situation right. like that? Yeah, so yeah, there, there is there is a bit of of gray area in there, and and just like the the real world, if you hire somebody off of Craigslist, or even if you have an employee, um, there's often gray area. Uh, but you know, customers agree to uh, an intellectual property agreement, meaning that they do not own the work product until it's finalized and they process the final payment. And so there, there actually is legal, legal ground for if a customer were to cancel a project claiming that the, the quality of the project was far below expectation, it just wasn't satisfactory, and th- they then took that work product and started to use it, then, then the, the worker has a claim. And in, in those cases, um, you know, there, there's the, the customer is notified. That is... That is, you know, kind of academic because it's not happened on our platform. Uh, but I've, I've certainly read case studies of it happening on other other platforms. And depending on the scope of it, it's worth, you know, for a worker to, to chase that down or, or not. And we'll certainly facilitate that. Uh, well, uh, I bring it up because uh, uh, I, I, I believe, having been a, a newsman for a long time and having uh, seen it over the years, uh, you know, a need for a service like yours. There, there are others out there, obviously. What makes yours different than uh, some of the other things I've seen out there? Yeah. Well, I, I think <laughs> we're playing into uh, people's natural tendency to be lazy. So said another way is that the ease of use and convenience of my crowd is, is geared to become part of everybody, everybody's daily life and part of their workflow. Uh, people typically use five pieces of software every day, whether it's Gmail or Outlook and maybe Skype and uh, you know, maybe Microsoft Word. They, they have their fixed number of apps that they use on a daily basis. This is their workflow. And so a lot of these other, not a lot, all of the other um, exchanges and platforms are another tool that you would have to add to your day. And, you know, by the nature of habits, people are loath to do that. They might do it for a big enough project that gets them out of their usual rut to go do that. What we're saying is MyCrowd runs within the software that you use every day. Are you on a website? MyCrowd runs as an extension. Are you in Office 365 or Google Docs? MyCrowd can just run as an overlay wherever you are in your tool. So you don't have to change your workflow. And that ease of use will really help you that in the moment of inspiration when you say, oh, here's a task, I'd love to hire a freelancer for it, one click and my crowd is there presenting millions of workers from around the world for you. So it's running within the applications, the ease of use um, is, is really a really big differentiator for what we have. And then I think our process is also smoother, but that's, you know, that's a matter of opinion. And, the, the, and your website? So the website, if you want to go to our website and use MyCrowd on the website, it's there also. Uh, you can go and log into MyCrowd.com and have the full MyCrowd experience, or you can install the, the Chrome browser extension, and that's the one click is anywhere on the web. You're one click away from MyCrowd. Well, it's interesting. Uh, it, it's very uh, 
uh, in the time remaining, do you have any good stories you can tell us about uh, uh, some successful uh, uh, utilization of your? Well, uh, let me ask you. Sure. What are the three or four main uh, areas that you really shine in uh, that people use you for? So I think that there have been a large number of, of small businesses and startups and entrepreneurs that, that use my crowd. Uh, and we've had, um, we've had some folks with podcasts, uh, you know, come on and, and, and have scripts that they want professionally read by somebody and they'll record, uh, you know, a voice, you know, a woman with a British accent or somebody, you know, with a Jamaican accent or whatever to add flavor to podcasts, which is, you know, was a use that we never had had intended. Uh, we get uh, translations often. So a company will be doing business with several different countries and they just have the need to translate documents on a really periodic basis. And so this becomes an easy way for them to just translate everyday notes and memos and, uh, and not make a big deal out of it. Uh, but we also see a lot of design. So I think in the, in the, uh, certainly in the public eye, design has, be, has really increased in popularity and the need for good design really helps businesses stand out. And, and so whether it's a business card that looks really professional with a really unique logo or it's a website that looks professional. Every, every small business needs these, and they need to be done well. And so while people are busy with their core competency growing whatever business it is, having a platform like MyCrowd to hire the designers we see is, is very popular. So it, it's actually one of the features that works well with MyCrowd as well because you're able to view designs and rate them, and, and they display it really beautifully on the screen. So it, it's something we see a lot of use. Well, what about uh, uh, what about the technical support? Do you uh, provide that type of service as well? Uh, I'll tell you more specifically. Uh, we, yeah. we, because of, of the need, um, because uh, Microsoft uh, abandoned support of XP, had to go out and change all of our uh, uh, computers in our, our business. And uh, the task was uh, overwhelming. It it put us behind for two weeks. And uh, I would sure like to have had somebody that could have done it for us in terms of, for instance, just transferring the materials from one computer because it turns out that um, it's very difficult to to, uh, uh, move uh, material from uh, uh, Windows 80, uh, Windows 8, from uh, XP, despite what everything yeah. they said, um, do you do that as well? So, so I, I think that the answer is yes. There, there are a lot of um, you know, technicians out there that help people migrate their software, upgrade their software. There's a lot of remote desktop um, and remote management tools that let people do that remotely. But I think it's it's important to to also draw the distinction that if it's something that requires somebody on site at your office, uh, you know, hooking up a printer, then that's not for my crowd. There, there are some vendors out there. Um, I was trying to think of the name of, of one I was reading about. Uh, slipping my mind. But, but they specialize in sending a, a, a freelancer to your company to do whatever it, need, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, run duplicates or, or what have you. Um, but that's certainly... 
there are you know, technical support people, there are project managers, which also comes back to one of your earlier questions about what if you have a larger, more complex project and you're not sure where to begin? Sometimes a good starting point is to just hire a project manager uh, that's got an expertise in that area. And that person can help you define what needs to happen and then hire in the individuals uh, to complete the team to do a larger, more complex project. So sometimes that helps with IT migrations is you hire in one person that oversees the project and they bring in experts as needed. Yeah. Again, your website, because this has certainly been interesting to me, and I, I hope to our audience as well. So uh, your yeah. website again? It's uh, it's mycrowd.com. And if they wanted to talk to you, uh, we always ask, is there any way that our audience can reach you? Absolutely. I, I try to make myself available to, to all of our customers. So you could send an email to matt, M-A-T-T, at mycrav.com. Matt, thank you so much for being with us. Um, we really enjoyed thank it. You, and good luck. You too. Take care. Have, have a good day. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience add profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, tell others about our efforts. If you would like to be a guest or suggest topics for future hours, email me at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. We would also like to remind listeners that besides our radio efforts, Small Business Digest comes to you via the web, through our video channel, and in our magazine. You can subscribe for any or all of these by going to smallbusinessdigest.net. That's smallbusinessdigest.net. Thank you, and have a good day.